Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses, and I do it with lighting that's way too, this is way too bright. Meanwhile, it's an audio podcast. I don't know why I'm futzing with the lighting so much. I notice you are too. Amir uh, Tariq is the founder of Cart.com. He says it's the world's first end-to-end e-commerce platform. He also is going up against Amazon and Shopify. I don't know why. But I appreciate the battle. I invited him here largely because the guy's got a war chest. He's buying up everything. And he's got a history, a track record of actually creating an amazing e-commerce success story. Before cart.com, he owned blinds.com, ran it, and then sold it to Home Depot. Good to have you here, man. Hey, uh, great, great to be here and uh, looking forward to our discussion today. I feel like uh, I saw your eyes do something when I said that you owned blinds.com. You were one of the early people there, right? But you ended up leading it towards the end, not technically the, the founder. That's, What's the position? That's that's right. So uh, the founder was, was Jay Steinfeld. Uh, I was hired to actually leave finance when they were about a $20 million uh, or so business. Uh, the, the role was to lead finance, uh, buy companies for inorganic growth uh-huh. and then organically scale the organization to hundreds of millions of dollars and, and, you know, ultimately either go public or exit to a larger company. Um, over the five ish years I was there, you know, the company sort of scaled from 20 million to hundreds of millions of dollars. We, uh, you know, raised some capital with, uh, a couple of institutional investors, and then ended up exiting to Home Depot back in 2014. For how much? Uh, it's undisclosed. Did you own a significant? Did you end up with tens of millions of dollars at the end of that? Is that weird to ask you? I didn't. You didn't. That's why I started Cart.com. And still, how much money did you put into Cart.com? So my my co-founder and I we uh, started Cart.com with uh, a chunk of about about 20 million dollars. Uh, of, of our own funding before we got any institutional investors to come in. Um, and, and we did that because of the, actually two reasons, right? One, the level of conviction we had on what we were building. Um, and two, we knew that uh, what we wanted to do this time uh, was not just build a company to, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but uh, ideally build the world's most valuable company. Because you're going to be the software backend to all the future online stores that don't end up going exclusive to Amazon, for example. Think, think about it this way. Um, you know, yes, that's right. There is a software component to what we do. We power the backend of websites just like a Shopify does or a Magento does. Um, but, you know, if you think about the problem we're trying to solve here is that Amazon is the only company in the world that has a completely end-to-end e-commerce as a service platform, which is uh, a brand or a product company can just send a pallet of product to Amazon and Amazon kind of takes care of the rest. Uh, they, they own the entire digital and physical operational infrastructure and technology infrastructure that is required to be successful in e-commerce. And, you know, that's a very attractive value proposition for products and brands and entrepreneurs that want to go digital. Um, however, it comes at a cost, which is um, one, you know, Amazon takes a you know, 35, 40% uh, share of your GMV. Uh, two, Amazon does not let you have a relationship with your end consumer and you don't own the customer. You don't get to be a brand. And then uh, number three, in, in many cases, Amazon competes against you uh, with their own products. Um, so, so when, when, a, when an entrepreneur or a product or a brand uh, gets tired of that and, and they say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go launch my own website and go direct to consumer, they typically go on a Shopify, uh, which is an amazing platform uh, to go from zero to one. Um, however, these brands and products and entrepreneurs realize that uh, Shopify does one thing for them, which is help them launch a website. And then in order for them to actually you know, execute on the e-commerce, call it operations of the business, whether it's marketing or fulfillment or payments or conversion optimization, they got to connect to all these different apps that are out there. And, um, you know, that's not a big problem in the first, you know, few years or when you get, go from zero to a million bucks in, in sales. But as you cross that threshold, you realize that, holy crap, I'm, I'm one, uh, having to be the middleware between all these apps that don't actually talk to each other. Uh, two, I gotta like 
figure out how to navigationally figure out which app do I actually connect to, to do what exactly, because it's so fragmented. And then number three, um, the total cost of ownership is extremely high because each one of these apps are different uh, businesses that require, uh, you know, X percent of your contribution margin to for them to stay alive. And, you know, $500 here and 2% of GMV there, and you sort of add it up to 20 plus apps and operating partners, you know, these brands don't have the, the dollars left to invest in driving growth. They, to seem, their they seem to have, Google I mean, when I'm Instagram. talking about the companies like Brewmate, they seem to have enough of a profit, but you're saying that there's even more there because they're sharing too much and because they're, they're spreading their expenses across all these different, um, all these different providers. And so you want to do the software like Shopify does, but the, also the 3PL services that somebody would sign up for and also all the plugins that somebody needs. You want to do everything. When you say end to end, you mean every single thing? Yeah. When people ask us, where's our app store? We say we are the app It should app just store. be all included. If, um, and that even means the shipping. You want to handle shipping for them. I mean, obviously, you'd, you'd use a, a service yeah, provider have, like UPS, but you want to hold on to the product and then send it out. That is correct. Uh, so today we have nine fulfillment centers around the country. Um, and, you know, there is, uh, uh, you know, north of $100 million in uh, GMB flowing through our wow, fulfillment hey. centers today, okay. um, only to grow to hopefully, hopefully, hopefully by the... Uh, by Q2 of next year, it's going to be closer to, uh, you know, north of half a billion um, just through our fulfillment centers, right? So uh, we're, we're one of the, I think we're the only company outside of Amazon that's actually crossed the chasm of being a digital and a physical company, right? So we've, we own both aspects of e-commerce. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Um, I do want to um, double click on one thing you said, which is someone like Brewmate, which is a great Me product, too. by the way. I love Brewmate. Um, Part of the reason they're able to be successful uh, on a Shopify platform is uh, is partially because of their margin profile. Um, not every product that is being sold online has the luxury of being north of fifty percent margins, um, and 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 the reason that is relevant here is because on average, e-commerce margins are twenty to forty percent. That's sort of like the industry standard. And then when you're giving fifteen percent of your margin to um, a 3PL provider, which is what on average it, it costs, and then 1% for payments and call it another 5 or 6% yeah. on miscellaneous conversion optimization tools and so on and so forth, yeah, you've kind of left you know 20 25% of your gross margin uh, on the ownership of the actual technology and operational infrastructure. So if you're a 40% or 30% margin business, after paying for your labor, how much do you have left for marketing? Okay, I'm with kinda you on lot. this. All right, let's come back to then the money that was put into the business. $20 million. I'm guessing then it's your co-founder who put the bulk of it. It was. Okay. Yeah, that's right. He's been he's been very, very, very successful as an entrepreneur. Um, has had uh, two, two nine-figure exits uh, prior to this. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got the purple thumb of entrepreneurship. So uh, he's, he's, he's done well for himself. But, you know, he, he gets out of bed every day uh, because he wants to keep building and where did the idea stuff. come from how'd you notice it um you know the idea came how'd you from, notice it how'd you realize that this was an issue it seems like at blinds.com you guys were doing you guys did all of this at blinds.com everything that you're describing a cart right you you had the site the operations the shipping yeah. the whole thing so how did you even realize that this was a problem yeah look um if you look at the t- 10 biggest e-commerce companies in the world or 20 biggest e-commerce companies in the world, there is going to be one thing that's going to be common amongst them. They are fully vertically integrated and own the entire e-commerce value chain, which is they own their own fulfillment centers. They own their own custom built technology platform. They do their own marketing. They have their own conversion optimization processes and so on and so forth. Um, They're not on a Frankenstack of apps and technology partners. Um, so both at blinds.com and then at Home Depot, as we sort of like scale those businesses from tens of millions to hundreds of millions, and then from hundreds of millions to billions of dollars at Home Depot, it was very apparent to us that this verticalized infrastructure is actually what is needed to unlimitedly scale e-commerce. And, um, you know, as we, as we, and by the way, Jim had done the same thing, right? My co-founder, he had started a company called Arctic Outdoors back in 2015 where he sold 
coolers online. It was a competitor to mm-hmm. Yeti. It's still a competitor to get Yeti. Still, the business is still around. That business went from zero to like $236 million in its first year of operations. And, you know, he originally started off at uh, BigCommerce and very quickly realized that that is not going to work. So switched over and built his own custom platform. And he had the, you know, extremely lucrative gross margin profile to be able to go pay for it. And also he was a wealthy entrepreneur in the sense that he had had previous exits. So he was able to invest significant amounts of capital to go build the infrastructure that was needed to scale the business. Once he did it, it scaled. And so when we, when we got together, uh, we both kind of came to it with the uh, very explicit conclusion of in order for you to be successful in e-commerce and scale a business profitably, you got to own the entire verticalized chain. And then we looked around and, and looked for people that were doing that. And the only person that was doing that was Amazon and they owned half of the internet. And uh, we were like, hey, we got we to change that. How big did he get Arctic Outdoors? I guess it started out as Arctic Coolers. He and his brother built it up, right? And then they went beyond coolers to um, chairs and all kinds of outdoor stuff. I see tents on their side. How big did they get revenue-wise? Yeah, I mean, look, in the first year, they I think they first crossed year? $230 million. Um, and, you know, first year, they no did $230 million. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that that business uh, went, uh, you know, complete plaid speed uh, in, in within 12 months of starting, which is an incredible story. Uh, you know, so that was five years ago. Um, now the business has continued to to grow very successfully, and you know where they're at today is not publicly disclosed, except for the first year amount. Uh, they actually exited the business for a majority uh, uh, sale okay. to Winpoint Partners. Uh, so this is hundreds of millions of, of dollars. Um, in, so, so they're, you know they're, what? You know, so the thing is, when I see him, he just kind of yeah. looks like a good old boy, like a nice guy. He's probably running a nice business. He cares about coolers. <laughs> I had no idea the business was that big. How did you two hook up? Yeah, he he's he's an incredible guy. You know, he he went to Sam Houston State. You know, no no no, no Ivy League League school for him. Comes from a very humble background, and uh, you know, started his career as a as a CPA at Deloitte, and and really did well for himself there, and realized that there was an opportunity. Uh, in the R&D tax consulting uh, concept around taxation. And he started a company called Align Group, uh, which, uh, you know, if you're a Houstonian, you kind of, uh, in the in the middle part of uh, the city, there is a big old skyscraper that has Align Group on it. So, you know, he built that business from ground up to, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and had his first exit there uh, when he sold that to a private equity group. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's, 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 he's a hands-on, good old, good old Texan, um, you know, kind of get into the weeds and get stuff done kind of guy. And um, he had reached out to me um, back in summer of 2020, actually, wanting to uh, potentially see if there was a way for me to come work for him at Arctic. Uh, he was at that time looking for a CEO. And, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily looking to leave Home Depot uh, to, you know, work for an established company. Um, and, and however, so we sort of like never got a chance to connect. And then one day we, we were able to connect, uh, in August of 2020 and, uh, spent about the meeting was supposed to be for 30 minutes, ended up talking for about two and a half hours. And we didn't talk about Arctic at all. <laughs> we talked about cart and we talked about disrupting uh, the e-commerce space and, um, you know, that night he, he texted me and he was like, Hey, I just bought the cart.com domain name. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, how much did you spend on it? And he told me how much you spent on it. And I just completely lost my mind when I heard it. Uh, it was in, it was a, it was a seven figure purchase. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty high up there. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so at that point it was, I remember it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm, I'm sitting next to my wife and I tell her like, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving my, my job at home Depot tomorrow. And she's like, uh, really? You're an officer there. What's going on? Where are you going to? And, you know, she was expecting me to say, I'm going to Amazon or Google or Facebook. These were the companies that I had talked to prior. And I was like, no, I'm going to start my own company. And he's like, oh, she's like, okay, great. That's phenomenal. But what are you going to do? And like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to build something that takes on Amazon and Shopify all in one, one splash. <laughs> uh, she's just like, who, who are you going to do this with? And I said, I'm going to do this with this guy called Jim. 
Uh, she's like, who's Jim? I've never heard of him. I'm like, yeah, I met him today. <laughs> uh, so the story got more ludicrous as I like, told it to her and, you know, as, as, uh, our more thoughtful spouses, uh, sometimes talk sense into us. You know, she asked me to go back to sleep and we'll talk in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, in the morning wow. I, I woke up and, and I resigned from Home Depot and I didn't tell her that for, you for didn't, a month, You month literally did not tell her for a month and a half that you quit your job? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want her to freak out and. Wow. <laughs> I didn't tell her that. Are you still married? It was, it was, it was, you know, it's a pretty risky move. Um, I had a but, very, the, but it seems uh, like the, the thing married. that the two of you came together on was that uh, you had an advantage over other e-commerce businesses in that you built everything from soup to nuts, everything from the website to, uh, to the shipping, to the yeah. fulfillment, to everything. And you, and the thing was that you said, we could bring this to other businesses. You know what though? Oh, Mayor, doesn't it feel like what you're doing really is just saying we're going to take all the pack, all the products, all the services that they're paying for already and we'll do it together and we'll integrate it into one. The the end, the business still doesn't own all that. They now are trusting you instead of several other service providers, but they don't own it themselves. Yeah, there are there are three distinctions, though, uh, very fundamental ones. Um, the first is we actually very much like Shopify, uh, integrate with all third party solutions. So if a brand comes to us and says, Hey, I don't want to do end to end everything with you. Um, I want to keep my marketing tool with Clavio and I want to keep my fulfillment with uh, a 3PL provider. Uh, I just want to use you for your platform. That's totally fine. And we're, we're, we're. We're like, we think like Apple from a, from an experience perspective, but not philosophically. We don't want to force you into our ecosystem, right? We want to be brand obsessed and we want to do what's better for them. That's the first thing. The second thing is for brands that, uh, come onto our end to end platform and, and trust us with their business. Uh, one of the most fundamental things we do for them is not only do we provide them with a completely unified front end, but we actually provide them with a completely unified backend. And what I mean by that is we actually integrate all of the data on their end consumers and give it to them so that they can be smarter about how they segment personalize and how they tailor their, their operational execution to their brands, uh, to their end consumers. Right? So that is a huge difference between like what an Amazon or, or even a Shopify does. Like we're the only company in the world that collects all the data on the end consumers of these brands and then gives it to them so that they can be smarter about it. And then the third thing is because we are philosophically not trying to force you into our ecosystem, even in the event when a brand only uses us for our online storefront platform or just fulfillment or just for marketing services, our technology is so unique that it actually brings the whole Frankenstack that they have in a singular place where even though let's say you're on our platform, but you're using a different third party, uh, 3PL, you're using someone else for marketing services, so on and so forth. We have built connectors to every platform out there and every marketplace out there that actually allows us to still provide that unified experience to these brands just so that they can be smarter about their business. And we do that because we believe that if we help these brands grow and we show our obsession with them, they'll ultimately bring all of their business to us. Meanwhile, uh, meaning what you're saying is they could use cart to list on Amazon. Absolutely. They could use carts fulfillment if they're selling from Shopify. Absolutely. Okay, all right. Let's let's talk about how you got here. If you don't mind me going a little bit further back, I kind of talked a little bit about your co-founder and his background. Your background is way different. You were born in Dubai. In <laughs> when was this? I was I was I was an eighties. What kid. decade? I was I was born in the eighties. Yeah. What was what was Dubai like in the eighties? Sorry, you were born um, there. What was it, it like in the eighties? It 80s? wasn't like it is today. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Um, you know, my, my parents had migrated to Dubai from Pakistan and, uh, you know, my father had moved there to, uh, hopefully start a better life for the family and, uh, had actually moved to Dubai much, uh, earlier than, than I was born there. And, you know, my mom uh, continued to live in Pakistan for a period of time. And then, uh, you know, right before I was born, she was able to move to Dubai and the family sort of like united. Um, I, I grew up there. 
Uh, man, life in Dubai was very strange in the 80s, um, you know, in, in the early 90s where you didn't have all the, uh, s s call it exuberance and, and amazing things that Dubai has today. And you sort of like grew up in a small city in the middle of a desert uh, with a ton of money from oil and gas and, you know, the immigrant population just sort of like starting to grow. Um, and, you know, I, I felt uh, pretty, uh, I would say, uh, I would say like, I don't know, fish out of water there because it was just, you know, a country or a city or state that never felt like home because, you know, even if you were born there, you never citizen there and you still had, uh, you know, Pakistani passports. And so it was a strange experience, but, you know. Did you I, have less access because you were, you were not a citizen? Yeah. You did. A hundred percent, man. Way less access. Like what? Like, I mean, look, I, you know, just, you can't own, you can't, you, back then you couldn't own property, for example. Uh, okay. uh, you couldn't get access to, you know, the best schools as easily. Um, and, you know, that from a very early stage uh, developed a very rebellious uh, attitude, uh, you know, that I grew Could you up rebel with. in Dubai? So, <laughs> yeah, could you rebel in Dubai? Well, uh, you could either go along with whatever was being thrown at you uh -huh. or you could rebel. <laughs> I chose the latter. <laughs> and what was rebelling like for you? I mean, you know, I didn't, you know, I grew up with, uh, with not a lot of friends and, uh, did my own thing and, um, finished school three, three years sooner than everybody else, because I didn't want to stick in the same class as my classmates. And, you know, I, I had finished high school at 15. Um, and, and I just kept, I, I just buried myself in, in books and astrophysics and theory of relativity and, so your rebellion was to to work harder and graduate yeah. sooner. And and to me that was to me that was, was okay. you know if I work hard enough um and I I put in the right amount of effort um I'll I'll create my own city one day. <laughs> uh you know. And that's the other thing that I heard that you got from being in Dubai that yes you were an outsider there but you also got to see this country develop out of nowhere become a whole other thing. And you told our producer that you started to see what was possible, that if all these people can go and transform, then you could transform. And if they could build the city in this way that they did, you could build yourself or maybe your own city. That's yeah, what came look, to and, you. And the two things came to me, right? One was the, yeah. the art of the possibility, right? Which was like, what could be created from nothing? Like, you know, literally Dubai was a desert and like, with palm trees and camels, and it was transforming in front of my eyes um, in a way that is just unimaginable to see the skyscrapers go up. Like you, nobody can explain to you that you know three months later you cross the same street and there are four buildings in it than that you didn't have. It was just incredible. But then the second thing that <laughs> uh, you know also I got from it was uh -huh. it was being built on the back of immigrants that were being brought to the country and not given the same rights as the locals and not given the same uh, opportunities as the locals. And to me, those two things sort of intersected at the core of my rebellion, which was one, anything is possible to be created. Number two, you don't really have to, to you know, treat people like shit. If you actually give them the opportunity to be successful alongside you, you can create so much more. So when I, when I multiplied those two things together, I was like, man, one, you can build anything. Two, if you actually reward and recognize people that are building it for you, how much further could you get? Um, and, and, you know, at the very, at very early age, yeah. um, I, I sort of saw that and, um, you know, it sort of became, uh, a, a, I would say a core of what, what I ended up becoming over time. You know what the other thing that stands out to me, and we'll move on from your childhood to blinds.com in a moment, but the other thing that stands out was that you were entrepreneurial even back then, that you made airplanes better than other kids and you decided to sell them. Yeah. And that's the type of person you were. Yeah. Look, I, when, when, when life is hard and you know, you're, you're going to school or are surrounded with, with people that are exponentially much better off than you financially and socially and you know so on and so forth um you kind of just have to figure it out to stay relevant and um you know it's it, it was a tough sort of growing up period but it taught me that 
I could get creative, think beyond the box and, and do things that were not linear. Um, and you know, for me, if I didn't have enough uh, money to buy stuff at the canteen and, um, I found a way of having money to buy stuff at the canteen. <laughs> Bye. That's, that's got to feel great. I loved earning my own money as a kid. I mean, I love it now, but there's something about doing it as a kid that was even more exciting. All right. Speaking of, I should tell you that this interview is sponsored by HostGator. For anyone out there who has an idea and needs a website, ooh, this kind of competes with CART. But it, you tell me if it does. The blogging and content publishing part, CART is not going to specialize in, right? That is correct. The woo. The WooCommerce part, when I say that WooCommerce could be used to turn a HostGator hosted WordPress site into an online store, you're going to say you don't need to. No, you tell me. Would you suggest that people go to Cart or if they start their own business, start with maybe a WooCommerce and then build up to Cart? Yeah, when you, when you want to start your business, you should start it on a Shopify or a WooCommerce. When you want to grow it, you need to come to Cart. All right. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why some sponsors get a little nervous about sponsoring this. I bring the, them up in the in the interview, and sometimes the guest says, "Actually, nobody should use the sponsor. I got a better company." And other times they say what you do, which is a little more of a nuanced thing that you could build on WooCommerce and then grow to Cart. I'll say this: if you need an easy website that you can take with you, in fact, you own your content, you own your site, you could move it to a different hosting company anytime you want. You could do what I did, just. Get a low price by going over to HostGator. They do really well. They've never caused any issues. Well, I shouldn't say never. I don't. I remember one time Michael had to call them up for something. I don't know what. But they solved it. The site's up. Everything's working. And I'm really happy to work with them. And if you want to work with them too, I'll give you a URL where you're going to get their lowest possible price. Here it is. It's HostGator.com slash Mixergy. HostGator.com slash Mixergy. All right. Blinds.com, another great name, especially back when, when the company start. I think you oh, got into man. it back in 2010, but yeah, it was around no. for a few um, years before. So, so Jay Steinfeld, the, the gentleman who founded the company, um, I mean, got into the internet business back in the 90s. Uh, he actually got into the internet business before Amazon did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, wow. his, his first website uh, was, I think, nobrainerblinds.com. Uh, and, you know, from, from that, he sort of like grew the business. Prior to that, he actually sold blinds out of a van and then had a small retail store here in Houston, uh, him and his wife ran. And, you know, then this internet thing came along and he was one of the early adopters to launch a website on it. And, you know, as the years progressed, um, I think uh, at some point in the early 2000s, he was able to get the domain name blinds.com, which uh, to be honest, became a point of inflection uh, for the company as, as the credible, relevant, only category owner uh, for blinds online, right? And you mean dramatically just changing the domain name back then dramatically changed the revenue? Uh, well, look, the, the revenue doesn't change just because of having a good domain name. What ends up happening, though, is because you own the domain name, three things happen. Number one, you get more credibility right away, where, where if you're okay. buying from a no-brainer blinds.com versus a blinds.com, mm -hmm. From a consumer perspective, you're just just gonna have a perception of Blinds.com being like bigger, older, better, more credible. The yeah, second yeah. thing is by owning that domain name, you do get big benefit on uh, search engines, right? Because when people are searching for the keyword blinds uh, and you own the domain name, there's just inherent benefits of of that. The third thing that happens is when you own a domain name like this, it allows you to attract talent much easier, which is, which is kind of crazy to think about, but it's a real thing. And, and it's part of the reason why, to be honest, we, you know, one of the reasons why we acquired the cart.com domain name, which was we knew that in order for us to build, you know, a trillion dollar company, we're going to have to attract amazing levels of talent and significant amounts of capital. And that was going to be really hard if our domain name was like, you know, I don't know, cheap, simple cart.com or something. Yeah. Or even if it was more of an enterprisey name, I think that it, for some reason, having it be cart.com, even though it's not consumer facing, just does give it a ton of credibility. Frankly, so does the amount of money that you guys raised. Let's stick for with blinds.com for just a little bit. You ended up running the company, am I right? So I was the I was the CFO there and ultimately the became the chief the operating officer. Correct. Uh, okay, chief op operating officer. Was Jay the CEO right to the end? 
Yes, that's correct. Yeah, he, he was, was the CEO okay. and, and, and founder. Uh, you know, I think he retired, um, I think a few years after exiting to Home Depot. I forget exactly the year it was. And, um, you know, so that was a little bit of a sunset. And around the same time, the, the businesses had also become pretty embedded within the broader Home Depot organization, which is kind of what happens when, you know, a large mm -hmm. company buys a smaller company. So uh, most of the roles got verticalized and, and the business sort of like continued to and continues to exist today out of Houston, Texas, and focuses on a very specific con uh, configurables product uh, vertical and, and as well as, you know, um, allowing Home Depot or actually catalyzing Home Depot to dominate the world of lines. I I'm seeing pictures of Jay online. He seems to be super happy right now. I see him in in shorts, like really short shorts, sitting in a box of books or near a box of his book. Uh, and he's now looking. It looks like he's doing a lot of nonprofit work. He's doing something with uh, Keller. He's doing something with some kind of Arab yeah. Israeli school system. He's... Where he's getting them both together. Right. He's he's now at that point in his life. Yeah, he's. Uh, I know he's teaching uh, at Rice uh, University and doing a you know bunch of yeah. board advisory roles. Uh, he's also an investor in Cart. <laughs> uh, oh, he which, is, which we're grateful for. Makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, which is, uh, but but yeah, he's 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 an awesome entrepreneur. And uh, to be honest, during the time that he built a dot com company uh, in Houston. Um, you know, there were a lot of odds against him from a talent attraction perspective and getting um, attention from the coastal VCs perspective. And it was a different era. And, uh, what, you know, but what did you what did you do there to help change the company? The, one of the things one of the reasons why I asked specifically, I worked hard to get you as a guest, usually guests come to us. But I said, I read about you, I read a little bit, but I didn't get a sense of what you did. All I got a sense of was that you had incredible reputation in the industry. But when I when I read up on you, it's just sold the company to Home Depot, ended up staying there. What is it that you did to help change the company? Why is it that yeah that you were so sought so, after? So think think about it this way: when a company goes from twenty million dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars, mm -hmm. that journey um, is you can't just grow up to be a four hundred million dollar business all of a sudden. Um, there are uh, strategic decisions, there are operational execution plays, there are organic and inorganic execution plays, there are capitalization and capital formation plays, there are talent attraction, team building. All right, let's and pause for a moment. Let's, plays. let's double click on that capitalization. What was that? And what was the rest of that? Yeah, part? so. So think about it this way, right? Yep. So if you're a hundred million dollar business and let's say your EBITDA is three to five million bucks, um, you're only able to go as fast as your EBITDA allows you to, if you're investing most of it or all of it to okay. grow your platform and go full blown world domination mode. Okay. Um, there is a very deliberate capitalization strategy that needs to exist as you think about scaling faster. And, and by the way, it has to be very deliberate because you don't want to raise capital too quickly. Um, because then you have too many cooks in the kitchen, but at the same time, you don't, you don't want to take too long because then your competition outplays you. So that whole strategy around who do you acquire to gain market share? How do you raise capital to invest in the right things and be able to successfully execute those investments from the outside capital and institutional investors that you brought in and set the company up at a stage where you have the option to do one of three things. One, continue to operate the business very successfully and the business continues to be profitable and you can keep doing that and life is good. Two, you can take the company public because your fundamentals are good. The business is in a predictable growth stage and you have the optionality to tap into the public markets. Number three, when one and two exist, someone wants to buy you. <laughs> so having that optionality and being able to get the business to that level requires a lot of execution from an operational financial process technology. So aspect. then how do you think about capital allocation? How do you think about how much to invest? What is, the, what is it that you do that's different from what you, we'd expect that you do, which is put on a spreadsheet what you think next year's revenues are going to be, what the expenses are, how much is left, then see how much is there to invest. What is different than that basic 
overly simplistic view I have. Well, I think, I think, I think, um, I think that view actually the way you described it is how large companies traditionally allocate capital and just respectfully, I think it's wrong. Okay. That's not how it should be done. And that's not how we did it at Lions. The way you should allocate capital is that you should start with your consumer or your customer. Okay. You try to understand one, the pain points that they currently have two, the pain points that they're going to have. And three, the preferences that they're going to have okay. super important pain points that they currently have, pain points that are going to have, and preferences that, are, that they're going Take to have. Take me through it in concrete way, through blinds. What do you mean? What's the preferences that they have? What's the pain that they have? Yeah, so think about it, right? When you're when you're selling something as complicated as blinds, uh, you know, people can't imagine buying blinds online. It's and it's anxiety inducing like process right. because you have to measure your blinds. And by the way, you have to be accurate to like, you know, one half or one fourth or one eighth of an inch. By the way, if you have three windows in your living room and you measure one of them, not all three of them are going to have the same width. That's just how all homes in America are, are organized. Most people don't know that, but going through that process and doing it online, trusting yourself in a DIY job of a complex product, getting stuff delivered that actually fits your windows. That is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and if you think about it, what, what blinds.com did or what we did over there is it wasn't about selling blinds and having an unlimited assortment or the best price or the best promotions. We built a strategy that removed the anxiety from the process of buying blinds. Now that requires technology and operational and, 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 and content and, and, you know, strategic execution that allows the consumer to feel comfortable doing the transaction. Like what, you. what do you do for, and, you know, by the not, way, if you see me looking at the computer here is because I'm going to blinds.com to see for myself what, what's different. But the first thing that I see at the top of the page is enter the width and the height of your window. What, so it looks like they, they're leading with the anxiety. What's, what is it that you do that's different? And how does that connect back to projecting income in a business to know how you can allocate your money? Yeah. So th think about, think about uh, three or four buckets. The first bucket is on the top right of the website. You probably see a really friendly person and a number and a call center number that says, hey, you can call us anytime between these hours. And when you call someone, you actually speak to an expert. Um, the call center that we built at blinds.com was not just a call center that is service oriented. Uh, we staffed it up with world-class experts in selling blinds and selling oh, wow. blinds online. Wow. So these were people who you would call and talk and virtually they would guide you through the process of buying blinds in a way that nobody else can. That's the first fundamental anxiety reducing process. Number two, we tell our customers, look, man, we have a sure fit guarantee. You mess up, don't worry about it. Donate your blinds and we'll send you new ones. I don't know how much you know right. anxiety reducing, how much more anxiety reducing you can get, right? Number two. Number three, uh, and this was something that was launched during my time there. I was actually the one that launched this project, which is, okay, if you're uncomfortable measuring, and you're uncomfortable installing, then we have a process where you pay us a hundred bucks or whatever, and we'll send someone to your house. They'll measure your entire house. Even if you're buying just a blind, it's one window, we'll measure your entire house uh -huh. you have it for the future. And then you can place the order. We'll give you the measurements and then we'll send someone when your product arrives two days after the product arrives or the day after the product arrives, they'll come and install it for you. You can do the whole transaction online, never get out of the sofa and install blinds yourself Got and it. measure it. So, you know, we crossed technology and operational chasms when it came to allowing our customers to feel comfortable. Like, hey, this is a no regrets move. And then, you know, we coupled it up with content and education and videos and marketing and people, like real people. And that so what you're saying is, there with blinds, what you did was you just kept seeing where's the anxiety, where's the problem, where's the pain, how do we alleviate that? Okay, and so now coming back to cart, you get the idea, and the first thing you do is you start to create, 
And then you keep coming back to your customers, the store owners, and saying, what else do you need? And just instead of creating it on your own, you're you're acquiring the business that gets the customer the, the service they need. Am I right? Yeah. Um, think of us this way. We are investing on behalf of our brands. So why does a typical brand that's doing $2 million or $5 million or $10 million in sales a year not have access to the same enterprise-grade end-to-end e-commerce platform and operations as a Home Depot or as a Best Buy or as a Target? Why is that the case today? We want to change that. So, and, and we're so aggressive and so obsessed with our brands to change it that we are going to go buy it if we have to. We are going to go build it if we have to. <laughs> we will do whatever it takes to get you the same access, the world's largest. So I'm, I'm on GMC have. right now. GMC is one of your customers, right? If GNC, excuse me. GNC, GNC is the car company. Yeah, yeah GNC, the, the, uh, the supplement and health food company, health product company. So if they're one of your customers and they say, you know what? I see that some of our some of our competitors have phone numbers at the top right. We want to have a call center. They might come to you and CART will then go and acquire a call center or have one already. That's the vision that you have. Absolutely. So absolutely. So I'll give you an example. You know, there there is a customer today that uh, we're working with. They're they're doing about hundred million dollars in online sales. Um, they came to us with a very fundamental problem. Their problem was, hey, we're a twenty-five percent gross margin business, and the cost to maintain our technology platform is causing our EBITDA margins to be negative five percent. How can you help? <laughs> and and we said, well, look, we can do your marketing, your technology platform, your call center, customer service as a service. Um, and parts of your fulfillment or all of your fulfillment. And we can give you a better price than what you're paying today to operate all of that yourself. Uh, okay. And uh, we, we, we did the math and we did it, right? So we're in the process of getting this customer onto our platform now. And that customer in the next six to eight months is going to be EBITDA positive because they're taking advantage of our end-to-end -end platform versus their own Frankenstack. All right, so when our producer asked you what the first step you took, you said, we actually did the opposite of what everyone else tells you to do. We didn't go and do customer validation. We just knew what we needed to build, and we started to build that. Why was it so important that you that you know it? Look, I, you know, imagination and, and creativity, by definition, exists around a world that hasn't been created yet. <laughs> and, you know, we knew that we had to be really imaginative and creative in what we were trying to build. And we, we didn't have a playbook of like, oh, let's go try this and see, iterate on it. However, what we did have is both Jim and I had had built brands from tens of millions to hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. And we knew what worked. And when we looked for what worked in a democratized way, it didn't exist. So we were like, look, we don't need to talk to like 50 people to do this. Between Jim and I, we had experience of doing this like three or four times in three or four different places. And we were like, let's go build it. I think they will come. So what's the first thing that you built then without asking, just knowing that if you built it, they probably would come? Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the let's build it and they will come was basically the end-to-end e-commerce platform, which was how can we very quickly... Uh, and speed was a thing here, and speed was a thing here, not just because of our conviction, but our conviction was so undeniable that we were like, this is so obvious of a problem that like, I don't understand why nobody else is doing this. And you know, now we understand why nobody else is doing it because it's really hard to do. <laughs> but, but, but we were like. <laughs> but, but so the first, the first thing that you built was the software to create essentially a Shopify or Magento WooCommerce, we, the software we, was the first thing we did. The first thing we did is we acquired a company that had the online storefront platform, the company called AmeriCommerce. That was the first thing we did because we knew that the uh, anchor asset or the nucleus of this end-to-end e-commerce as a service platform is going to have to be a robust 
capability and a software solution that has existed for more than three months, right? So we found, we, we went shopping and uh, found a company that had been built over 15 years and a platform that was 10 times more feature rich and flexible than a Shopify, but 10 times easier to use than a Magento or a Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And, and, you know, we were like, okay, we're going to go buy that and then start building around it. That's the first thing we did. Okay. I see that that was January, 2021. And then did you start? Well, so then you also end up getting customers because they had, they, they it was a robust uh, customer base. I'm assuming then you go to those customers and say, what do you need next? Or what should we be improving here? And then you improve and fix improve that's, that's and, and augment. That's it. That's that's it. Yeah. Look, I mean, once we invested significant amounts of capital in acquiring capabilities, and we're still acquiring capabilities, and we'll continue to acquire capabilities when a customer asks for something. But the iterative step there was we built the first, call it, version of an end-to-end platform. And then we started talking to our customers and cross-selling and getting a feel for, like, what were they willing to pay? Were they willing to pay anything for the extra uh, one-stop shop capabilities? And how much were they paying? And what were they asking for that we didn't have? And how did they want to do business with us? And Based on that continuous feedback loop that we were getting, by the way, we had an advantage because we acquired a company that had existing customers, right? So we, yeah. we had a captive audience. Um, and then, you know, we just got laser focused on uh, what they needed and started building or buying it. And so what's the next thing that you bought? So, you know, we've made seven acquisitions to date. Uh, we're going to be closing on uh, probably three or maybe four more acquisitions before the end of the year. Um, you know, we bought uh, third-party logistics capabilities, marketing services capabilities. Um, you know, we've we've acquired, uh, we've acquired people uh, to come be part of our organization. Uh, you know, we are uh, in the process of buying. Uh, significant platform upgrade capabilities that are SaaS solutions that are being added to our end-to-end offering so we can provide a one-stop shop for as many things as possible. So, um, you know, if you think about e-commerce, right, like the three fundamental pillars are marketing, storefront, and fulfillment. Um, all of our acquisitions have been sort of like based on those, on the, on the um, uh, souping up of those three vectors. And you raised, is it $143 million to do this? That's right, since inception. Okay, and the whole idea is we are going to go on an acquisition spree to acquire all the pieces of e-commerce that our customers need. And if we can't acquire it, then we'll build it. And that's the whole model here. The only thing I'll change here is we're going to go into a brand-obsessed driven world domination mode of which acquisition is part of the strategy what is what else is there then (laughs) there is the organic build of a product and technology that unifies the entire infrastructure on the front end and the back end there is the uh, uh, efficiency vectors of providing your brands with things like marketing attribution and leveraging data science commoditizing the use of data science uh, for every brand in the world why should only a target or Best Buy be able to use things like multi-touch attribution? Um, you know, there is a, there is a, there is a significant. You know, people. You know, look. The, the the thing that makes the news is when you buy a company. The thing that doesn't make the news, which it should more than you buying the company, is what you've built in ten months, right? Uh, our product today has magically brought together the entire end-to-end e-commerce experience for these brands in a way that nobody has been able to do ever. And and that, I think, is even more overpowering and impressive than the acquisition spree, if you may. And then there's also the cross-selling. So you get customer from one business that you acquired that then finds out about the other service. And so it seems like even if you weren't integrating it, if you just made it available and cross-sold it, that the, that the overall revenue would grow. Am I right? That's right. That's exactly right. All right. Yeah, I saw you smiling as we were talking about it. I the other thing that I saw as I was looking is, dude, you're freaking built. What's your workout regimen? Is it weird that I'm asking you that? <laughs> I'm looking at your triceps. You're, you're clearly, you're, you've got to be on a desk. I can't see it right now, but you're on a desk because you've got to keep that poor iPad of yours from falling over because we insisted on on uh, a specific app. But I keep looking at it. What's your workout regimen? How often are you working out? 
Yeah, look, I used to be 220 pounds uh, and uh, in my early 20s because, um, you know, I was just eating McDonald's and drinking Coke. Oh, you were heavy uh, 220. Okay, really? I was like fat, like oh, a fat boy. <laughs> I got to look up a, and, a fat you know, and I love photo. And I love uh-huh. eating. I love eating food and I'm a foodie and always will be a foodie. Um, until I went into a Zara store and tried on some slacks and they were too long. And I asked the rep there, I was like, hey, do you have a slightly shorter version of this waist size? And they were like, we don't make clothes for your your body shape, sir. (laughs) And I was like, all right, man, I'm going to change my body shape. So, you know, since then, I've been working out a lot. (laughs) How often are you working out and what are you doing to keep from eating so much? You know, I, I would say before starting CART, I was I was working out five, six days a week. Now, obviously, I can't do that. Uh, but, you know, three to four days a week, uh, I, I try to go in the morning and do my early morning meetings uh, from the gym, uh, which which is great. But um, I don't eat healthy, man. I eat, I, I cannot stop eating good food. That's not something I'm willing to give up in life. However, I'm willing to work out. And, and, <laughs> and so you'll work out with burn. people. <laughs> That's uh, no, you know, I work out. I do weight training and, um, and just you know, uh, it's, it's a way for me to um, stay mentally and physically fit to to do what I'm what what, what I'm doing here. But when uh, you say that you'll do a meeting from the gym, hard. you're saying that you'll do a meeting yeah. on the phone from the gym, just or? a Zoom, yeah. So Zoom yeah, while you're on the treadmill, Zoom calls. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> my my team is used to me, uh, you know, at this point, huffing and puffing, you know, <laughs> you know, that I'm working out hard to stay healthy so I can keep building what we're building. <laughs> Dude, now I wish that we'd done this call from uh, from the treadmill. I don't see any photos of, of, of Fat Omer. I'm seeing photos of you looking super dapper. Like, even in the TechCrunch article, the TechCrunch article uh, on your latest raise, there's a black and white photo of you and the other executives you're looking like you're in like, I don't know, some kind of magazine, some photo shoots. Got to feel good, right? To look good compared to what you used to look like. Man, Photoshop is a real thing. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> uh, I have went back and eliminated all of the bad photos on the internet. No, I'm kidding. But no, it's look, man, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's part of being able to work as hard as we do at CART is you've got to stay healthy and, and, and sane. Otherwise, um, you're, you're not going to be able to uh, you know, do the things we've been able to do in such a short period of time. And by the way, you don't have to go back and delete any photos. Your name is so freaking common that I see people from all over the world with your with your name. So the, perfect. It's so perfect. Yes. All right. The company name is cart.com. Um, and I think this is an impressive play over here. But frankly, how could it be any less considering the team that you put together for this? So congratulations. Thanks for being on here, man. Yeah, this has been the most fun interview I've done. Uh, and I've done some, you know, interviews with TechCrunch and no offense to all of those other reporters. This is this has been amazing. It's been, it's been a lot <laughs> Got to bring up biceps. <laughs> Got to bring up childhood. All right. Uh, thanks for being on here. And thank you to my sponsor, HostGator, for uh, for letting me have my, sponsor, my guests talk about them in any way they want. Thanks. Bye, everyone.